would be better, a way that seems right to us. Could God not have chosen the legal action of pardon rather than the option of substitutional atonement? Couldn't God have just made a proclamation of universal pardon for all of us, thereby sparing his son the horrors of the cross? Well, let's think about this for a minute. You know, the president of the United States or the, the governor of, of a state uh, on occasion do pardon those who have been convicted of a crime or crimes. Uh, but suppose our justice system never punished lawbreakers, uh, that it just pardoned them. So if you can imagine going to uh, a, a courtroom and uh, there is a trial being held there, we'll say for someone uh, who has committed murder, and um, evidence is presented, it's overwhelming, they got the right guy, and uh, the jury deliberates, the judge passes judgment, and um, well, the jury found you guilty, but I'm going to pardon you anyway, so uh, don't do this again. And then you have one mass murderer followed by another, by a terrorist, uh, by all, all kinds of people who, who break laws, and uh, the court just issues blanket pardons to all of them. What effect do you think that might have on the lawbreakers? What message would they hear? Well, you know, if you get treated the same for breaking the law as you do for keeping the law, there's really not a whole lot of incentive to keep the law, is there? So uh, let's apply that situation to sin. Suppose God established a system that, that did not require any penalty whatsoever for sins. What would that mean? Well, for one thing, it would mean that there would be no Day of Atonement. You know, we talked about the Day of Atonement a couple or so weeks ago where the, the, the priest would go in and he'd have to sacrifice a, 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 a bull for himself and sacrifice a ram for the other priest before he could even think about offering a sacrifice for the people, and they would bring two goats there. One they would uh, sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and the uh, Holy of Holies on, on the Ark of the Covenant. And the other one, the priest will lay his hands up upon the, the goat and confess the sins on behalf of the people. And the goats uh, or the, the sins of the people would be transferred or imputed uh, is probably a more precise term, though not as familiar uh, nonetheless, uh, the sins of, pe of the people would be charged to the goat's account and the goat would be driven out into the wilderness uh, where it would wander around until it died. So there would be no need for anything like that. So uh, no need for a scapegoat, no need for priests, no need for a tabernacle, uh, no need for Ark of the Covenant, no need for a temple, and no need for a Savior. Because all of these things God established so that we could get the idea, whether we were Jewish or not, that we could get the idea that God doesn't just wave his hand and forgive sins. He requires some kind of payment for that. Uh, and if the guilty person is not able to pay, he will accept a substitute. But the substitute must have a perfect record. Uh, 
And so we saw as we go through the Old Testament how it's impossible for the people to you know, keep all of the laws. And so they, they go through the, the, the ceremonies and the rituals to have their sins roll back another year, incurring a huge mountain of debt uh, that they can ignore from one year to the next. All of it uh, being carefully constructed by God to communicate to his people then and to his people who would come afterwards that the, the payment of sin is not something that you can just simply sweep under the carpet. It requires sacrifice. It requires an innocent sacrifice. So, if we decide that, you know, just having God grant a blanket pardon to everyone would be the, the, the better way, the, the preferred way, you know what kind of effect that might have on our view of sin? Would we regard sin as being all that serious if there was never any penalty for sin? If no one ever had to pay a fine, no one ever had to be imprisoned for uh, the, the crimes that they committed, that no restitution ever had to be made, that there was never any kind of retribution for crimes committed, would we have much of a, an appreciation for how serious sin is or how serious lawbreaking is? We would not. Um, and along with that low estimation of sin, something else always comes along, and that is a low estimation of the holiness of God. In the age where we live and walk through life, the uh, estimation of sin uh, just seems to be, uh, there's pressure, it keeps going down, and along with it, the estimation of the holiness of God goes down. And what we want to do is we want to raise both of those up. When you raise the uh, awareness of the seriousness of sin, at the same time you must also be aware of the holiness of God and that God cannot look upon sin. That's part of what it means for him to be holy. So my objective today is twofold. I probably should have more objectives in here, but I narrowed it down to two. There's a wide objective and a narrow one. First, the wide objective is I want to raise our estimation of the grace of God and of the wrath of God. It will give us a deeper appreciation of what Christ did for us when he absorbed the curse. And my second objective is a narrow one. I want to convince those of you who are under the curse to run to Christ and be saved from the curse. So let's get started with the first object objective, and that is uh, to make you aware that the curse is real. You know, when we think of a curse, uh, we don't think of something that's real. We think of something that's uh, either superstitious or hocus-pocus, or maybe associated with witchcraft or voodoo or, 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 or something like that. 
Um, so I'm not an expert in voodoo or witchcraft, but I do know a little bit more about superstition, so I'm going to use an illustration um, from, from the superstition uh, area of life. Um, many of you here are from the Chicago area. If you are not from the Chicago area, uh, you are fans of uh, the Chicago Cubs. And so you will be aware of the curse of the billy goat, right? And back in 1945, uh, there was a man by the name of William Sayanis who owned the billy goat tavern, which uh, was just across the street from Wrigley Field. And they the Cubs were in the World Series that year playing the Detroit Tigers. The Cubs were up two games to one. They had this home game, and if they won this game, you know, it'd be up 3-1 and be almost insurmountable. Uh, so William Cianis wanted to go see the game, so he bought a, a ticket for himself and one for his goat, Murphy. And so they, you know, went up to the stadium uh, to enter in, and uh, the guy taking the ticket said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, you can go in, but not your goat. Uh, the biggest objective they had um, for the goat coming in was it, it didn't smell good. It just wasn't clean and kind of a nasty thing. And, uh, you know, a goat can cause a lot of havoc. So uh, William Cianus was um, not permitted to go in unless he got rid of his goat. He didn't want to do that. So he just went back. And on the way back, uh, he uttered what we might call a, a curse on the cubs. And he says... You will not win this game. You will not win this series. In fact, you will not win another World Series ever. And so every time the Cubs got close to getting into the series and it didn't happen, they were reminded of the curse of the billy goat. And some people take that seriously, even though it's really just superstition. You know, a, a, a lot of times people put, I'll, I'll use the word religion, maybe faith would be better. They will link faith and superstition in, in the same category. You know, it's not something that's, neither one they say is, is based on objective truth. It's uh, something that you might believe that uh, affects the way that you live and affects your worldview, your, your outlook on life. But there's no objective truth to it. Now, that is true of superstition, but it is not true of Christianity. It is objective truth. And um, along with that objective truth is this thing that we are calling, or something that the Bible calls, uh, the, the, the curse. Actually, it's rather firmly rooted in, in Scripture. Uh, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and after Adam and Eve commit the sin of eating the forbidden fruit, uh, you know, God pronounces a curse. He pronounces a, a, a curse on the serpent, and he pronounces a curse upon the earth. If we fast forward a little bit, uh, we'll come to the oracles of the prophets. And um, when the prophets spoke for God, that is when you know, they were speaking not their own opinions, but the words that, that God gave them. They prefaced what they were about to say with something called an oracle. 
You've heard of the oracle of, of Delphi. We, the first town we lived in when we were married was near uh, a little town called Delphi, and the nickname of, of uh, the high school team was the Oracles. You know, so the Oracles of Delphi or out there in the football field or on the, the basketball court, you know, very clever. Um, but uh, nonetheless, most people have heard of the Oracle of Delphi, uh, sort of like a horoscope. You know, you go to the Oracle at, at, at Delphi if you wanted to find out what was going to happen in the future? You know, who am I going to marry? Uh, how many kids am I going to have? What kind of work will I do? Where will I live? All, all those, those kinds of things. And so even though that was part of culture, um, you know, later on, we need to be reminded that the hundreds of years before the oracle of Delphi, you had the oracles of the prophets. So the oracles of Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, and, and so forth, all the way down the list, they always pronounced an, an oracle. And they had two different kinds of oracles. There was the oracle of weal and the oracle of woe. The oracle of weal um, was good news and the oracle of woe was bad news. So in a sense, you could say when a prophet came and got ready to speak for God, and instead of saying you know, the oracle of the Lord, an oracle of weal, he'd come up and say, I've got good news and bad news for you. Or he might say, I've got bad news, there's no good news today. Or you know, he might say, I've got good news for you, and, and there's no bad news for you today. But and in our context, we understand you know, good news and bad news. So uh, just for example, if you go to Psalm 1, um, this is an oracle of weal. That is, it's an oracle of good news, an oracle of blessing. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And, and, and it goes on. But, but it's all blessing. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are, are, are blessings, aren't they? You know, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed uh, are those who mourn, those who uh, are blessed are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And, and it goes on, it's, it's all blessing. And um, then later in Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus uttering oracles of woe. He'll say, woe to you, Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. And uh, then he'll bring the, the, the woes uh, out. So this is something that is deeply steeped in Scripture. Now, I want to point you to um, one of the prophets, Isaiah, in, in chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, and as he sees the Lord, he is struck by the realization that God is holy, much holier than he ever imagined that he could be. And Isaiah is aware that he is not holy, um, much less holy than he thought he possibly could be. And so he pronounces a curse, as it were. Not on God, not on anyone else. He pronounces it on himself. Remember what he says, if you're familiar with that passage? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He, he, he was aware that in the presence of God, he was unclean. And so 
he, he pronounces this woe upon himself. So th this is something that we found woven all the way through Scripture. And you know, what we're trying to do in this series is, is bring a, a lot of the things that we find in Scripture and we think, uh, why is this even in the Bible? It doesn't really have any relevance for us today. Couldn't we just ignore that? We, we, we take some of these obscure passages and, and uh, kind of weave them through and, until we get to the point of the crucifixion. And then we see almost everything. Well, not almost. We see everything that's in the Old Testament converging together to make sense to the story. So, lost my place, sorry. How do we understand the curse? Um, you know, we can really only understand the curse in, in terms of blessing. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, the, the whole story of the Old Testament is going to converge at Calvary and the, the windows or the doors of knowledge are opened up to us and we are able to see uh, this, this marvelous plan uh, that the God had uh, to bring about forgiveness for his people, restoration uh, for uh, his, his, his people. But it comes in the form of a curse. And we can't really understand the curse unless we understand it in terms of blessing. This makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you, you, you really can't understand darkness unless you first understand light because darkness is the absence of light. You can't really define death without defining life first because death is the absence of life. And you can't define evil without first defining good because evil is the absence of good. And so you can't, therefore, really define a curse without first defining a blessing. So if you want to um, understand what is meant to be cursed, the simplest way is to look at the uh, priestly benediction, which I uh, often pronounce at the end of a service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord calls his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the blessing. Now, to understand the curse, you know, we really have to understand this blessing. So what does it mean to be blessed? You know, to, to be blessed by God is to be bathed in glory that emanates from his face. So when you think about blessing, you think about the face of God. Remember that time in Scripture when Moses went up on the mountain, he's getting the Ten Commandments from God, and uh, he's meeting with God, and he asks God, uh, show me your glory. And God says, uh, Moses, you really ought to pay attention to the books that you've written because you ought to know that no one can see the face of God and live. However, what I will do is I will hide you here in the cleft of the rock, and when I walk past, uh, you'll be able to see my back as I go by. And so that happened, and as a result of Moses beholding part of the glory of God as, as, as he goes by, uh, something happens to his face. He goes back down the mountain and all the people see that Moses' face is bright. It's illumined. I mean, and it's so bright that Moses has to put a veil over his face because it's going to put out uh, you know, the, the, 
besides being distracting, it's going to make it uh, you know, hard for people to see. And so there is that connection between um, blessing and the face of God. Long, long time ago, before most of you were born, there was a film that came out called Ben-Hur. Any of you ever see Ben-Hur? Some of you have. Uh, it's, it's a classic, but there is a, a certain scene there where uh, Ben-Hur is in slavery and you know he's being mistreated as slaves were. And uh, he gets to the point where he just can't go any further. And he's, he's there uh, panting. Uh, he's fatigued, you know, worn out. And uh, then uh, we, we see this figure of a person. We never see the person's face, uh, but this uh, figure comes up and, and overshadows Ben-Hur and uh, uh, bends down, and we, we can see the hand extending a, a cup of cold water to Ben-Hur. And as he receives that cup of water and he looks up, his face shines. Well, we don't have to be told who that mysterious figure is, uh, who was given been her a cup of cold water is. You know, he's none other than you know, the, the, the Lord Jesus himself. But there is that connection there that when the Lord looks upon you, when he causes his face to shine upon you, that is the essence of blessing. Now, if being blessed by God is to be bathed in a glory that emanates from God's face then what would a curse be? A curse would be the opposite of that. You know, a benediction, the opposite of a benediction would be a, a, a malediction. It would be a curse. It would sound uh, something like this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. How would you like to hear that at the conclusion of a service? You're not going to hear it. You know, we, we don't like maledictions. We don't like to hear anything from God that speaks anything to us but a blessing. And I talked about Isaiah a minute ago. Uh, there's, there's something that, that Isaiah says in chapter 53. This is about the, the suffering servant. So uh, I want to show you a, a verse, but, but I want to show it to you in context. And uh, here's the passage. It's, it's familiar. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now those words are hard to hear. But then we come to verse 10. Look at what it says. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. What? You mean to say that the Lord took some pleasure in crushing his son? What kind of God is this? Who would do that to his son? And so we might back off from that. 
and think it's too horrible. Criminal, perhaps. But we don't understand what's happening. See, what's happening when the lashes of the whip come down on Jesus' body, the crown of thorns is thrust into his brow, the nails are driven into his hands and into his feet. Do you know what God the Father is doing? He's turning his face away from the Son. He is in effect saying, the curse of sin is on you. And so Jesus bore the curse for us. But more than that, Jesus became the curse for us. Is all this stuff hard to take in? I mean, don't we really like to hear something that's lighter, you know, more um, inspirational, more uplifting? Of course we do. So why are we talking about these things that are heavy? Without this solemn understanding, we have no, or, or we have a very shallow appreciation for the grace of God. We must have a deep appreciation for what caused that or what brought grace about, which is the wrath of God, which came through the curse of God. So this is what I want us to see. You know, that's the wider objective so that you have a broader and a deeper appreciation of the atonement of what Jesus did for you. And now there's a, a, another objective. This is a narrow objective, and that is to convince any of you who are here who may be under the curse to run to Christ and be saved from the curse. If you don't know you're under the curse, you really don't feel much incentive to run to Christ. You figure you're okay, you're a good person, haven't committed any crimes, not really many sins. Uh, you know, even back in the first century, the Jewish rabbis had this discussion about how much righteousness was needed in order to be admitted in, into heaven. And uh, some said nearly 100%. And, uh, you know, God would somehow provide the rest. Uh, some said 50%, some said less. But for thousands of years, this idea, this misunderstanding of how God saves his people has been stuck within us thinking that it's by our own righteousness primarily. And then you know, maybe God chips in just a little bit. And this was the problem that the Galatians were having. Uh, they... I mean, the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus was news. I mean, it had happened just a few years prior to this. Um, and, and, and they were eager to follow Jesus. But some of these uh, Jews who had become Christians were saying, you know, we're used to worshiping in a certain way. And uh, un un unless you worship the way that we've always worshiped as Jews, 
you really can't be a, a Christian. And so they started mixing Judaism with Christianity, uh, mixing law with grace, and uh, as a result, they lost their appreciation for what God had done for them through Christ. So, I want us to look at Galatians 3.10, something Paul said, if all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. I mean, that's what he's saying. That Look, if, if, if you think that you can get to heaven through your good works, you're under a curse. He's pretty bold here. <laughs> uh, he's saying things that would make some people uneasy. Uh, but he quotes scripture from Deuteronomy. He says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So in other words, what he's saying is, is this. Look, if, if, if you want to try to get to heaven based on your own good works, uh, that's fine. It, it would be better if you would rely upon the perfect works of Christ and trust him to do it for you. But whatever you do, don't mix the two of them together. So if, if you are going to pursue um, heaven uh, on your own, uh, then be sure of this, you've got to be absolutely perfect in everything that you do every single day of your life, every hour, every minute, every second. And who has ever done that for more than five seconds? No one. So no one can do that. So we come to uh, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This also goes back to Deuteronomy. What the Jews would do when there was a criminal who was tried and found guilty, he would be executed by stoning. And then as an example to the rest of the community, uh, they, they would hang his body on a tree or on a pole so that everyone would know that he was condemned and this is what happens to uh, condemned people. And so when we see everything begin to fall into place, the, the, the stories of the Day of Atonement uh, with the scapegoats, uh, uh, the stories of uh, Uzzah and the Ark and, and the holiness of God, and uh, then last week about being outside the camp where it was unclean, all of this begins to converge and we see that Jesus is crucified not by stoning, which is what the Jews would have done. The scriptures determined that he would have to be executed by Gentiles and their method of execution was crucifixion. And he was hung on a tree. Get that image in your mind going all the way back to Genesis 3. Where did the forbidden fruit come? from the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. And they were forbidden from that point to eat uh, from the, the, the tree of life. But now we see outside the camp, there is this tree in the form of a cross. And the Lord of glory has been condemned and he's been nailed to it. As a result of that, Christ is absorbing the curse for us. 
I had a professor once in, in graduate school who uh, wanted us to be sure that God did not pronounce a curse on Adam or Eve, um, which is evident that he did not. But he went on to say, God does not curse people. You know, he curses the earth, you know, he curses the serpent, but he does not curse people. But here we see, well, go back to verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And uh, in verse 13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's a curse. John 3, 16, everybody knows that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, we're less familiar with, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then there's verse 18, which even fewer people know, which says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. In other words, under the curse, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It may be that some of you are there. That you do not believe. You maybe have a veneer of Christianity, but you have not committed your life to him. And so I want to invite you to do that. See, Jesus has already absorbed the curse. He's already paid the price. You know, I opened this uh, message with a story of a presidential pardon. And so I'm going to close with one. When Andrew Jackson was president, there was a, a case where a couple of men were convicted of robbing the U.S. mail um, vehicle in Pennsylvania, and so the penalty was death. Uh, but one of the men, um, his last name was Wilson, um, he had some friends who interceded, went to the president, uh, went to whoever they needed to go to, and uh, asked that their, their friend, Mr. Wilson, would be pardoned. And so President Jackson grants the pardon, uh, but only for this guy, Wilson, not for the other guy. No one ever interceded for him, so he was hanged. And so what happened to Wilson? He rejected the pardon. So government didn't know what to do. I mean, are you allowed to execute a man who's been pardoned? I mean, legally, he's not guilty anymore. That's been, it's been taken away. But they brought the case to the Supreme Court of the U.S. And here's what the Supreme Court decided. The pardon was a gift, sort of like a piece of property. And so if the one to whom the gift has been given refuses, then he is not in possession of the gift. And so he too was executed. 
You know, it's sad to think that someone has been granted a pardon of crimes, a pardon of sins. They've been taken away. You're no longer found guilty. Why would anyone reject that? But what really is puzzling to us, or should be, is knowing that there's someone who grants a pardon based not just upon an edict, but someone who has incurred the actual penalty that you should have endured. Someone who has lived the life that you should have lived perfectly in every way, every day. Someone who died the death that you should have died, which is picture for us on the cross. And the invitation is to have transferred to your account the righteousness of Christ so that you might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, as we acknowledge the, the, the depth of the system that you established, the sacrificial system, the requirements for a perfect sacrifice, all of that to point us to the time when the perfect Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world when the ultimate scapegoat would come and take our sins away as far as the east is from the west. When we consider all these things, how it had to happen in the context of a curse, being hung on a tree, nailed to a tree, and how on that awful day when you turned your face away and not even the sun would shine. So for that space of six hours where you turned your face away and the curse was fully upon your son, absorbing, paying for in full our sins, May the truth of that, the gravity of that, sink into our souls, into our minds, our hearts, our emotions. And may it result in believing without hesitation that our salvation has nothing to do with our good works but everything to do with what you have done for us through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.